Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian Nato Green. This is my podcast, a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. If you want to see me doing stand-up live, you can see me every Friday night at the business uh, at the Hemlock Tavern on Polk Street in San Francisco. Um, my guest today is comedian Andy Kindler. Um, Andy is sort of known as a comics comic. Uh, he does a state of the industry address every year at the Montreal Just for Last Comedy Festival. Uh, he he I've he sort of does this like crazy Jewish neurotic meta comedy that makes me he just makes me laugh all the time on stage off stage everything he does makes me laugh and uh, I met him a couple of years ago at SF Sketchfest he did my show Iron Comic. We started talking and have sort of gotten into a thing of like like having a meal together whenever we're in the same city. You know, we had breakfast together in L.A. and then we had dinner together in Boston when we both happened to be doing shows in Boston. Then we had uh, we hung out in San Francisco when he was doing shows in SF. And uh, strangely, like so several of our meals involved brothers from the same family uh, in different parts of the country uh, who all also had a relationship with the jazz great Benny Carter, who had introduced Andy to Benny Carter. So anyway, Andy's great, and I knew that he was a fan of the hate and uh, the 60s and counterculture, and so thought it would be an interesting experiment to do a podcast with him that was sort of a walk and talk through the hate ashbury And here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so here we are with Andy Kindler. Are we on? We're on now. I always like to be a little bit rude, so I always like to, I always like to truncate the uh, intro. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so <laughs> is it really fine or is it rude? I don't care. Do you need to do a clean intro like you're listening to the no, NATO Green podcast? I'll, I'll lay it in in post. Okay. Um, so, uh, and and we're here in the Haight-Ashbury. We're walking around cumbersome with mics and cords. And I came here because uh, another time we were hanging out and you were telling me that, that you were like, you know, a child of the 60s into the counterculture yes. and rock and roll. And so I thought we should come to the Garden of Eden of your people here in yes. the Haight-Ashbury and walk around and get, and I wanted to get your first-hand impressions. Uh, we could uh, do a little shmai. Is that, how's that sound to you? What's it called? A shmai. What it's is that? Is that Yiddish? a shmir? It's Yiddish. It's not a shmir. No, it's not a shmir. It's, it's what, it's it, a, when you walk, you walk, you look in a store, oh, you look at the thing. Beautiful. You, well, uh, this is actually, is this, and you, are you, are you, are you good with Yiddish or are you guessing? I know that shmai is a word because my mother says it and my aunts and grandmas and stuff. Only uh, women say it. But uh, I, I'm not, I don't, my you don't vocabulary is very li limited. Oh, well, that, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I always consider you uh, more knowledgeable about everything. But, you know, this really is. I, I, I cultivate that. Well, I know, but I think, you, I think you, you're very knowledgeable about some things, and then the areas that you're not knowledgeable about, you riff. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, no, this is really where it all started. And that started for me, but this really is because I was a grateful dead head. Oh, you, we should walk. We should, you want to, should we walk over to their house? Uh, sure. The dead house. Uh, I just. This is a record store. Do you see that they're selling vinyl? Uh, they're selling. Where do you see the vinyl? Over there on those boxes. There. Are they just? Uh, uh, is it just vinyl or is it? Are they actual albums? <laughs> joke Look, there. these are cassette tapes here. They have and vinyl. Wow. It's incredible. And this this is this is an independent venue that independent record store that has been here at least my my entire life. I've been coming to this neighborhood for since I was a kid. I um, Go like uh, when do you think it's when do you think? Well, how long has the store been here? Uh, 
1978. 1978. And, has, and it's the stores where it recycled records have been here since 1978. Uh, uh, but join the join, join the, the club. club. <laughs> uh, so, what kind? Of, are you a stand-up comedian? I'm a stand-up yeah, comedian. Yeah. But in the old, well, in 1978, when the store opened, I had just graduated college, and I drove cross-country to uh-huh. California to make it as a musician. Oh, okay. Singer, songwriter, guitarist back then. Wow. Yeah. And now I'm sure that you have not heard of my work uh, during that time period because you would have had to have been walking by my apartment. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so where, from? Uh, I drove from Queens, New York, ah, okay. cross country with a, w- a woman who wasn't, uh, had fallen, I don't know if she ever was in love with me, Right. but she said, it was one of these relationships where she said, you can't talk to me until I've had my coffee in the morning. That's right. a bad sign, right? No, not a good sign, no. So do you remember any of your original compositions? I remember them all. Okay, yeah. belt us out a few verses right No, now. I'm not going to do that. That's not going to happen because... Uh, uh, first of all, the competing music. No, I mean you're making. You, oh, you don't want to harmonize I'm already, with I'm already ashamed. I believe in myself as a musician, but I have a people like you. My whole life go. Why don't you belt out a couple of of uh, verses? Would you say that to uh, Tchaikovsky? I don't know what I'm saying. Really. <laughs> but don't you find that people always ask you to say something funny? That is true. I'm more comfortable with that. Because I think I can say something funny, but not in the context. They want like two people walking a bar and something crazy oh, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what have you been doing? You've been doing stand-up 20 years? I've been doing stand-up for oh, 28 years. And don't you think that if you had stuck with the guitar, maybe it would have, by 28 years, you would have gotten, you know, you would be the Tchaikovsky of singer-songwriters? I I think that I was meant to, well, I don't know if meant to do it, but I think I was meant uh, Beshert better. is more Yiddish. Beshert. Beshert? What does Me- that mean? Meant to be. Oh, okay. Boom! You're dropping Yiddish knowledge left and right. Uh, no, I'm from I'm from Bernal Heights. Oh, okay. So where'd you know? Where are you from? Yonkers. You're from Yonkers. Yonkers. The worst club in the world that I ever played at was in Yonkers. It was called Shooting Stars, that, where they had, had where th- they actually shot people. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> people in Yonkers would find that funny, you know. <laughs> they would tell a lot. Well, Grant, uh, Al Lewis, remember Al Lewis who played Grandpa on the oh, Munsters? Yes, he was a part owner of that club. Ah, and they would have three, it was during the comedy boom, they had three shows on a Friday night. And there's a famous story about Daryl Hammond being heckled, and he said, Come on, let me just do my act. I'm paid to do it. Why don't you listen to me? And someone yelled out, Get him, he's wounded. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the shooting stars. Uh, like on, uh, like it was like a Yorktown area. What is that site? This is way too specific. Uh, some kind of <laughs> avenue. On a, between an Central avenue, avenue and a Central boulevard yeah. of some sort. But I came out here and I drove and I went to Mill Valley and I was a hippie. And uh, I came out here with right... With Huey Lewis? Yeah, with Huey Lewis. Well, no, Huey Lewis was later. Oh, is that what he came out here to do? Huey Lewis is from... And he was, he was from Marin. Yeah. He was from Mill Valley and he was a hippie before he became the Huey Lewis that we all know well, about you know, today. You know, I did that joke about him, right, on Letterman, and the joke was uh, if Huey Lewis was a comedian, the name of his band would have been Huey Lewis and what else is in the news? Hey. And, and, and then uh, uh, and I said on Letterman, I, uh, I was hoping he'd have a resurgence so this joke would be more topical. And then his band answered me on uh, Facebook. 
They said, we don't, we don't know what could have made that joke funnier. We're still around, something like that. Uh, you, you did that joke in honor of the 25th uh, anniversary of sports. Was that the name of that album? Yeah, that was the big With album. Heart and Soul was on that yeah, album? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is available here at Recycled Records on vinyl. Original, original release. Well, because you really need to hear the top 40 on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's keep moseying. Okay. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Okay, so... So uh, we learned a lot of things that we learned that I'm not good uh, uh, ad-libbing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we finally blew that right. secret right yeah. wide open. Um, early for me. I don't know what you're doing up. I I'm sorry. I have children. Oh, that's I'm right. up at 6.30 in the morning. Right. When you say children, you mean uh, comedian friends? <laughs> uh, no, man. I have actual, I have, I have actual kids. Uh, they're six. I knew you did. I was I playing know. along like I'm playing the dumb guy. I'm I, not playing, And though. you said you weren't good at riffing. <laughs> uh, what, so, yeah. So, we learned that, that... And what was... Like, we're doing... I want to do the Andy Kindler origin story. The Smallville of Andy Kindler. Yeah. The Muppet Babies of Andy Kindler. I'm running out of ideas. Uh, so, so okay. So, what were you before you drove across the country? What what was happening? I went to col. I went to college. <laughs> I went to college upstate New York, State University of New York at Binghamton, Harper College, same school that Paul Reiser graduated from. That's my. Uh, uh, how, am I right, people? And then also, Carol Leifer went there for two years, and I was a, uh, I was an English literature major and a history minor. I'm, I'm not trying to play up the fact that I'm a, that I'm a, a academic genius, but uh, I mean state school after all. I knew you'd do that. How I knew you would say you that. Be? Uh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We were getting hit by a taxi. So, uh, what do you mean, how good could I be? So, what I did was, uh, but I always wanted to be a musician. Yeah. And that was my dream in life. And I would, I, I mean, because I'm old enough cause to remember the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. And, uh, and I got into the, I got into the dead big time in, in college. Big time. I played in a band that did a lot of dead type stuff. And then, uh, I drove cross country, but I did theater in college too. Oh, take a look. This is a store that only sells things in black and white. Wow. What does this mean, a black and white uh, flag like that? What does that mean? I think it's art. Oh, okay. There's an upside down black and white flag. I think it's art. It's not a good reaction to art. <laughs> uh, so, no, but I also did a lot of theater in college. So, I, but I wanted to be, I was a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and that's what I wanted to do for a living. And I did that, not for a living, but I did that for a few years when I got out to LA. Was that enough? Was that a mini? Well, biography. Okay, so, but was the were you like? Did you have long hair? I had long hair in college. Yes, I did. Um, and but then I think it started to gradually get shorter. I never got into a mullet situation. I'm very proud of that. And and did you, like, did you have this? Uh, and what were you like as a teenager? What I was like as a teenager was, uh, well, you know, I look. There's a couple of pictures of me from that time period where I actually would actually could stand outside myself and go, that's a handsome kid. But mostly... You're, you're from Queens? Queens, right? Queens, New York. But I, but I had very... Uh, no, uh, Whitestone. Whitestone, Queens. But I looked very... But a lot of, I, I looked awkward. Very awkward until what, about last year. What do you think this year. mannequin... What kind of message is that sending to you? Uh, well, this I think sent, it's trying to make a point It's here. a sexual... This seems very sexual. I'm attracted to that mannequin. <laughs> I'm attracted to this concept of life. But uh -huh. in reality, I don't know if I'd want fishnets. I don't know. I do want this woman, if, right. if that's wrong. Uh, she has very large plastic breasts. <laughs> as, 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 my as many women do. <laughs> as my wife would say, so you, so you, uh, you, you shop fishnet and you buy uh, slacks. 
Well, I don't dress myself. No, no. If a woman wore that, uh, whatever a woman wears looks good, but that looks very hot to me, but I don't know if that would last. Uh, you don't see really building a life with that mannequin. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, first of all, I'm married, so that would be difficult to have. I don't know if I'm one of these people who could have a parallel family. Uh-huh. <laughs> first of all, whenever I hear about these people and they say, like, who is that guy? I think it was, I hope I don't get it wrong. Was it Charles Kuralt who had uh, <laughs> Charles Kuralt? Yes, who had this whole other, like a family. Uh, if it's not Charles Kuralt, I apologize. But he had this, he, he did this. <laughs> Charles Kuralt is a regular listener. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> Yeah, but still, I don't want to get sued uh, even, even, uh, even uh, figuratively, even uh, theoretically sued. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, he, he used to do that Sunday morning show. I right. think it was him. But then he had this whole other life where he had other family and he had an affair. So my whole thing is, like, how can they afford that? Right. <laughs> sure. How could you afford a second family? Let alone the, the sinning part of it. Yeah, no, and it's her, and and a lot of aggravation yeah. of remembering who you're lying to. Okay, so we're, we're in front of a, a pipe and vapes shop. Mm-hmm. Did you smoke a lot of weed? When you were I of did. that generation? I did smoke a lot of weed. And, and uh, the character of Andy Kindler... Did it calm you the fuck down? I loved pot. I still would... Uh, uh, the character of Andy Kindler on stage would still enjoy pot, but not the person who has a, a life insurance. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, lo- I think pot is the greatest thing of all time, but I'm afraid to have a card. Right. Because I don't want... Uh, I'm afraid. I'm scared that it'll affect my health insurance. But I love pot. I love vape pot. Vaping is my favorite thing. Can you can you buy the pot here? No. Uh, no, but if we stand here for long enough, a guy will come up and offer it to us. Yeah, but he's not going to offer me the stuff that goes in the vape pipe. No, they're they're very they're very well tricked out at this neighborhood. It's all set up. When I first came, look, there's tourists here. They're people from another country. Oh. So this is this is this is the mother load of the beginning of the Grateful Dead, and now it's a tourist attraction. Well, when I first came, when I when I my whole problem with life was. Your I felt like problem. I was born within the wrong time period. I wanted to be a hippie. I wanted to be right in the middle of this, which you find out later. Because I was a huge fan of Ken Kesey, and I read the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and I really wanted to, and, we, and in college, we, you know, we all experimented with acid and much. So I wanted to be on the bus with Ken Kesey, but then I, realized, I did realize even then probably that it wasn't the image of it wasn't the same as the reality of Hate Asbury. Right. Because that's what even Bob Weir, all those guys say, it was very depressing here. But the electric cooling acid tests, those were fun. I, would, I wanted to be part of that. But now at my age now, I don't think I can do hallucinogenics now. Because I get too concerned. <laughs> um, too nervous. It's interesting that you, that you say that. So you, but you probably came up just after all that stuff, right? I'm 50. I'm, look, the, the cat's out of the bag of how old I am. My wife says to me, can you at least... Not say, tell everybody, not tell as you're ordering dinner, tell that person your age. Because you could, because there are still people I notice in the, on the internet, you still don't know their age. I thought everyone knew everyone's age, but I advertise it. But so I was part of the, uh, I was part of the 60s in the sense that um, the 70s were part of the 60s. Right. But wasn't the, but then when I say I wanted to be in the 60s, but then in the 60s, People were beginning fire hose, and Martin Luther King was killed, and, and, and I still, but that time period still is amazing to me. So, so you, you, but were you more attracted to the sort of cultural side of the counterculture or the political side of the counterculture as well? I was, I went, I marched against the war with my family in 1969. Our whole family went and did a candlelight thing. My memory of it is that my friend let me walk into a parking meter. I'll never forgive him <laughs> because he... I was walking, and he said, he said, he literally said this. He goes, uh, um, 
I don't know how to. And by that time, I hit it. He could have just said, look out, parking me. He goes, er, uh, I don't know if you know this, but boom. But no, I was I was attracted. <laughs> did, he, did he fall over laughing? Uh, yes, and I hated him. I, I was very upset. I don't even remember who it was now. I blocked out his name because I thought it was very cool that he let me walk into a parking meter. Well, why, why, why is people bumping into stuff and falling down always the funniest thing? It's it, always the funniest it thing. It is unless you die. They say it's very funny. But uh, no, I mean, I wanted to be a Woodstock I wanted to be, all those things seemed like I was more focused on Woodstock than I was on Altamont, you know? Yeah. So, yes, I, I, I thought it was, and I'm not one, oh, sorry, I'm not one of these people who believes that the 60s was a failure, because that's a kind of a common revisionist history now, or that because uh, it was very sexist, that that doesn't mean, that there was no good, that was part of it. In other words, like, there's right. a continuum, but I'm also, it was also, uh, uh, very, very much into the beats, right? And um, and Kerouac, and I mean, not enough to read any of the books associated <laughs> with it. But uh, I did read Howl. I did read On the Road. Enough to affect the attitude. I loved it. And in fact, there's a book out that Harvey Pekar wrote with a bunch of people called The Beats, which is a graphic uh, graphic history of. Uh, and period. Now we're walking, but this is where this is hate as. What do they call? What's the Asbury part? This the street that we are standing on now. We just turned south on hate onto Ashbury. Is it Ashbury? It's Ashbury. Why did I say Asbury? Oh, because Asbury you, Park. Because you're from the East Coast. No, but is, isn't it Asbury Park? New Jersey, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you're talking about. So, and the dead house is over here. Oh, I can't wait to see this. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna witness the Kindler rapture. So it's really interesting to me that you say that thing about feeling like you were born in the wrong time because I have that feeling too where, but I, I sort of feel like, like I, this sense of nostalgia, particularly about New York, like I was, I wish that I was from New York in the past. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Like, uh, and not even, and, and I'm, you know, there are many points in the past, like I wish that I had some connection to, for example, you know, the Jewish experience of the Lower East Side, you know, in the, at the turn of the century. Right. Uh, even though I'm aware that they were like squalid tenements and people got the hell out as soon as they could. Yes. Um, you know, and similarly, like, the, you know, the communist intellectuals of, you know, in the 30s and the, all that, like, all the way through. Well, the intellectuals, the, the intellectual part went away when many people didn't want to see what Stalin was doing. Right. <laughs> Is that where the... But most, the most American communists, they saw, they, by the time, by that time, they were not into, I mean, it was like, they weren't, were most American communists not deluded, but, I mean, in other words, they, they got into it, uh, sorry, they got into it for the, because my father said that at that time period, this country was very close to going either communist or fascist in the 30s. Yeah, I mean, well, so, okay, so. You know, in the, uh, my understanding of the history, and I wasn't there, as I mentioned, but my understanding of the history is that the uh, that the communist pe partly people didn't realize how bad Stalin was until later. Right. And part, but you know, it's it's complicated, right? Where it's sort of like on the one hand, the, I mean, and the communists are always sort of weird about this stuff. Where like on the one hand, you are, you know, officially under the auspices of 
of the Soviet Union, but what you're doing on a day-to-day basis in the United States is like, you know, fighting lynchings in the South. Exactly. And organizing steel workers and right. things that seem like a good thing. Well, um, yeah, they yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, but, and it's not until, you know, in the 60s with the rise of like the SDS and the New Left, here we are. This is the Grateful Dead house. Oh, did you know it was the Grateful Dead house? That's wow. That's a long walk. So, I'm guessing. I mean, you know, we're, we're this is a row of Victorians. Uh, you can see the, the 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 trim here and the stained glass. These are very distinctive features of. A well, I've also seen this. I've seen them on this porch before. Yeah, the photos of them with pig pen in the hole. But this is not, you know, this is not an especially well, like, as they go. I mean, if we, as, I don't know if you were looking up, but, uh, like, all of these houses, you know, I mean, these are these are probably $2 million houses now. Like, all of them on this block. Oh, so times have changed times in many changed. ways. Yeah. Is that because of the, uh, because they're like, is that because it's of the attraction of people seeing Garcia's home? Is that what's driven the... I mean, uh, the dead's place, was that what's driven the prices up? No, I mean, it's, you know, it's the, right. Uh, I think it's similar to, like, you know, brownstones in Brooklyn. Yeah. And how, you know, they were, like, these blighted neighborhoods 10 years ago. And then, you know, at more affluent people were like, hey, these brownstones are kind of nice and we can afford them. And then they fix them up and the neighborhood becomes fancy. Well, but is that, is, like, when they talk about it in the 60s and Bob Weir and they just how dangerous, how dangerous it was. Yeah, uh, it was the it was the you know bad not just the brown acid is bad but a lot of uh yeah I mean Manson is hanging out here at that time in San Francisco yeah oh my God I'm I just want to like, go on record and say that I'm anti anti Manson that that's maybe the most courageous political stance and I don't take. care who knows it yeah <laughs> <laughs> you'll tell Bill Maher to his face. Uh, I'd like to tell many things to Bill Maher to his face, but the bad part about that would be having to hang around Bill Maher while you're telling him. <laughs> well, you're telling as he as he said as he contributes to the worldwide uh, movement against Islam. That's what he thinks. Okay, we won't get into this, <laughs> but he thinks uh, him and his evil henchmen uh, Dawkins and Sam Harris. Uh, I'm going to start to call them evil at this point. Is that because I get sued for that? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's either slanderous or libelous. Right. If you, if you called them pedophiles, that might be illegal. Right. Okay, no. I'm, what I'm saying is evil. the idea that uh, doing any good at all is going to be result from somebody like Sam Harris picking a, some section out of the Koran and then saying, therefore, Koran is, Islam is evil. There's not one... Terrorist is not one terrorist that's going to be prevented from anything those guys are doing. Right. Well, Only hate and intolerance will be. Right. Will be. Uh, I mean, it's all. It's all. You know, it's like atheists are in this very like strident phase. When did they get this way? It's just. It's disgusting. Yeah, right, and it's, it's sort of like, what do you care if people believe that there's meaning in the world? Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, the way you said it is exactly right. It's like people like me who believe, who who sense that there's something. I can't believe you can be a musician or a comedian or, and we've talked about this before, or, or anything, do anything creative and not sometimes feel that there's a transcendent, there's a transcendent feeling that you can have in your day-to-day life. And, and, and if you're not defining that and saying, I've proved it, how can you possibly argue again? I and mean, what's your argument against it, that you're not allowed to have your own sense of things or 
I don't even understand where, I mean, I do understand where they're coming from, but it's so, to me, obvious that they're, uh, they're fighting against nothing sometimes, except for fundamentalists who nobody, nobody I know is in favor of. Isn't it interesting, though, that how, how many people have we encountered? I see, like, I can see, like, 30 people. There hasn't been one person yet who's come up to me. Oh, Andy Kindler. I, wow. What are you doing in town? Andy Kindler. That kind of a, that kind of a vibe. You know what? I don't find that interesting. I, <laughs> well, first of all, look. Here's the thing. You say you don't find it interesting. I was kind of making a joke, but by you saying you don't find it interesting, you're you're hanging me more out to dry <laughs> as someone who that's really what I was saying was why am I not more recognized? Right. So now you've you've ruined the joke. Well, it wasn't much of a joke. Bye. And you've also you're making me you're making a monkey out of me, which is what the whole goal of this <laughs> podcast is. Which, you, which was you, the which was the premise of the joke in the first place. Plus, I cr I cry. Uh, I cry, I cry uh, a, a river over this. I cry bullshit because if you got recognized, you would you like it when you're recognized. Don't lie to me, Nate sure. Green. Don't I, give me one of these. It's not about me. It's about the comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that. Uh, do Do you get recognized? If it's a numbers game, that's what I'm saying. Hundred, oh, we've seen yeah. a couple hundred people. Well, we've I only seen German tourists. Are you big with the German tourists? Well. Uh, everybody loves Raymond. Is playing in Germany. You uh -huh. think an older person would come along? He'd <laughs> say, "Ich bin, well, ich bin a maybe Berliner." It, maybe it's what you're wearing because you're not in the full Kindler regalia. I'm even wearing. I'm even wearing a shirt that advertises Bob's Burgers. It's a Bob's wow. Burgers T-shirt. What is... more could I do except carry around DVDs? Uh, or copies of your new album. What's that? Don't you have a new album? It's supposed to come out in the. It's a. It's coming out at the end of the year. It's a. I really have procrastinated on What's it. What's it called? Hence the humor. And it's available. It will be available on uh, vinyl, for those people who don't want to listen to it. Who in that store over there? Now, the, but do, are all these new? I mean, in the sixties, what was here? Well, so seventies. <clears throat> so like this was, before. The counterculture started. This was like a black neighborhood. Uh, regular listeners of the podcast will remember the gentrification episode where we talked about the, the influx of the hippies and black landlords having white hippie tenants and the landlord-tenant disputes that resulted from that. Um, Wait, wh white landlords? Black landlords, white oh, hippie oh. tenants. And they didn't like the hippie tenants. Yeah. Okay. So, but what you'll see here, like, if you, let's, let's stop for a second. Like, if you, I, I was showing you the houses on the side streets are these fancy old pristine right. Victorians that are two million bucks. But, like, a lot of those apartments up above the stores here, these are like these, you know, these hives of, uh, you know, uh, like three and four bedroom apartments, you know, that, where that would be like crash pads for, you know, people in their 20s. You still, know, co-ops, yeah, or, like, or more in the six, or yeah. now, but or more in the sixties. Well, I mean, definitely more in the sixties, and now they're you know pretty expensive. But the, I mean, a lot of these are are still like funky re old rent-controlled apartment buildings, um, with uh, you know, uh, that are like big you know hardwood floors in in that Victorian art Edwardian architecture style. But there's no longer any uh, any um, hippie tour buses, right? Where they show you where the hippies are. Well, I, I mean, this neighborhood is so weird because it's like, you know, when I was in high school, people like people would come and hang out here on the weekend, and 
you know, it's sort of like if you're growing up in San Francisco, the, for private school, I went to private high school. This is, this is private like, high school. Well, now all of the proletarian talk that you give and all of the lip service that you give to the common man is starting to unravel. I'm still upset, obviously, over his he didn't find that interesting remark. <laughs> and I'm looking for ways of striking out. <laughs> private high school. Over. Private high school, NATO. I'm a public school graduate. And look how uh, it worked for me. <laughs> um, so, so you would come down here and... Uh, I mean, I, this, this wasn't... Like, I did some... Uh, other kids in my school did a lot. And it was sort of like, the, you know, it's suburban kids go to the mall. San Francisco kids will go walk around the hate. And so once you're like the mall for private high school teenagers, yes. then, you know, you're not like a real so, area. So, I mean, there's always been this, you know, this weird vibe where like, you know, over there is a vintage clothing store that's been there forever. Uh, you know, and there's been some there over down there. There's some like funky old, uh, uh, you know, music venues and bars that have been, there, you know, and head shops and, you know, tie dye T-shirt places and. And those things have been, you know, around, around, but there's still not, uh, there's not, you know, there's certainly not like a thriving cultural scene of any kind here anymore. Well, when the, when the dead lived in that apartment, the dead lived in that apartment, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, was there ever anything except for the dead and the keys, you know, all the things I was raving about that I loved, was there anything culturally positive about this area then? Or it was a mix of culturally positive and negative. I mean, was the, is the Warfield a block from here? I mean, is no, the, the, Warf uh, the Warfield's downtown. Yeah, but I mean, there there are some clubs over here uh, that when I was a kid, it was the I Beam and the Night Break uh, and Rock and Robin. I think were the music clubs that we would come to. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it was there was a seedy and dangerous side. But that's like whenever there's that's always the part of the story of creative innovation is. You know, you you don't get like massive artistic innovation bubbling out out of you know, uh, uh, Malibu, right? right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like there's n nobody talks about the you know the cutting edge music and poetry being you know working yeah, out at true. the at the uh, Jamba Juice in Malibu or whatever. Like, well, and then of course the classic case of that is you know that the Hell's Angels were with you know were part of this Grateful Dead movement. And, right. So uh, I mean, there's this huge soup of like. There's there's Manson and the Hell's Angels and there's you know the Dead and Kesey and Jefferson Airplane yes and, uh, you know and Santana and you know and then there's like uh, all this political stuff happening you know I mean the that there's this is not uh, you know just on the other side of the bay the Black Panthers are being founded and you know up in Marin Angela Davis is you know get, raiding the the courthouse and like all all that stuff is happening around here. And it's all cross-pollinating. Here's my question to you, uh, because I, can, I consider you a knowledgeable person, and I, I'm beginning to think that it's all smoke and <laughs> it's all smoke and mirror. No, we the time period that was the '60s, that was a revolution in many ways, cultural and everything. W w that's never happened since then, in a way, right? Where it's been all. I mean. I know that I'm, I'm looking at things from a very American point of view. There's revolutions and things going on everywhere. But it seems like, what, what's going on? Is it, is it, is it, will there never be something that, that is that specific again? Or am I talking out of my throat? What, 
Well, well do, you in have other a, words, do you have a theory about it? No, I really don't. I, well, I have a spiritual theory that all of these... I have a generally optimistic spiritual idea about the universe and that I do believe on some level that everything... Everything ultimately is for the is for the good, even though there's evil and all these different things that that we're here we're here in general to someone's calling me, but I don't know who it is. Would you say that the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice? Um I would say here's the way I, I say it. Like if you look at if you look at what's going on in the world, all the terrible things that are going on, but then you get back you get back from that and you look at the earth from space, you real, to me it's like all of this badness, evil, okay. all of these things are superseded by something greater than that. So that I do believe, yeah, I, I think the fact that we're here and the fact that we can't remember not being here and who knows what happens when you die, but I think there's an, the, 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 the idea of life is to try to find some kind of happiness in the moment as opposed to the past or the future because that's what it was for me it was like for so long i was oh i wanted to be part of this hippie movement but now i look back at it well i was part of the alternative comedy movement when i was going through it in the 90s i didn't think of it as a uh, historical mo moment because when you're going through something you don't really sometimes understand it but when i look back on it i go oh that was pretty cool all these talented people came together. Right. You never realize that you're in a movement until it's over. That's what I think it may be. Uh, it's the Herodotus said that. <laughs> he did? Uh, Herodotus said you can't judge a war until it's over. Oh, I didn't know that. He was... Uh... He was really into the alternative comedy. <laughs> Herodotus. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like, okay, like uh, my, one of my problems and why I get into so much trouble with people like online, which I'm trying to do less of, is that I never thought I would get to the point where progressives that I would feel so alienated from progressives. In other words, if I say to you, if you if I say if you were going to say to me, uh, Obama's just like Bush, drones, I, I there's something about that point of view that's so cynical, and I also just think factually wrong, and I also think that people don't ever think, well, what would you do? Like I heard Michael Moore even say once on Flickly and Correct years ago that he wouldn't have even necessarily gone to war against Hitler. I mean, I, you know, to me, it's like Hitler. Hitler is like the proof that at some point you have to get involved and stop bad things from happening. And I think what it tends to do is people go, uh, like even Joe Manchin today on TV, he's going, "We were, you know, we were, we were trying to do do things in Iraq for 13 years. Yeah, but the the stuff that we did in Iraq with Bush was the, one of the was the worst thing that this maybe this country has ever done as a." as a foreign policy thing. It's, so, it's not all equal, you know? Yeah. Am I making any sense? A little bit. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well... Why am I not as articulate as I want to be? But anyway, uh, that's a separate thing. Refer back to, I smoked a lot of pot in college. No, um, no, you know what this, I don't like, that's why I don't like to do debates and stuff, because I, I know what I'm thinking, but I don't know if it comes out the right way. So, well, I mean, one of the things that's, that... Uh, you have I mean, what you're describing is a generally optimistic worldview, right? And, and I know that people are suffering everywhere. And I know that people have Ebola. It's not like I'm uh, ignorant of it, right? Uh, 
and I think you know it's part part of what you're describing is like coming of age in the '60s when there's all that hope and possibility and innovation. You know, I came of age during the Reagan administration. You know, so like and a recession. That's what was happening in the world. When I, you know, so like it's that 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 there is an aspect of like those things that are around you when you're a kid sort of carry through a generation. Right, but if you believe anything of Eastern philosophy, which I do believe in, which is to try to get not in a new agey sense and not in a phony sense, but if you try to get into the moment, into, in other words, like I haven't had cable TV for two weeks because we, my, my wife and I, we moved and we're trying to, and we bought a condo and we don't have any. I can't tell you how much happier I am that I haven't heard, you know, Chris Matthews and pundits and, and 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 the entire our entire media is all it's it's like I was even listening to NPR and you had Scott Horsley, and he's saying like uh, yeah the the country is very disappointed you know this it's a, a myth has, has has arisen that when Obama didn't bomb Syria that therefore he was a failure uh, in the eyes of the world and the fact that every single commentator says the exact same thing means there's no journalism going on it's all we're gonna argue this point of view. So when I'm separate from that, when I'm not hearing that, I realize, well, that's not really reality, arguing about these things, that's not reality. And reality isn't that you have Ebola. And reality isn't a recession. The reality is what's happening right now. And whether you can find, whether you can in this moment do something that's positive or makes you happy because I think that if you go too far into, first of all, if you're starving, you're starving. But if you go too far into all these different things, how can you ever enjoy anything? If you always say, I can't, I can't enjoy everything because of all the suffering that's going on. Right. I mean, I think, you know, as someone who's an activist, like, I think that you're, that there's a lot of, that I think one of, one of, the, one of the major problems that, you know, prevents the, the, the left or activists from being more successful is that we just bum people out. Uh, right. You know, like we project all this negativity and, you know, if, if you if you don't, if you're not involved in anything and you have a choice and someone's like, come over here, we're going to talk about Jesus and heaven and, you know, and it's going to be fun and everybody's going to be nice to you. We're coming to this meeting where we're going to talk about how sad and miserable everything is. It's like, if you're not already sad and miserable and ready to be more sad and miserable, you're not going to go to that meeting. But I also don't think it's effective activism because, you know, like a, a perfect example is there's a guy who did this documentary called Cool It. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's, an, he's, he's, he's a guy who's an environmentalist. He's trying to help, you know, global warming. But he said, and another example is that, like, my, my wife, like, she couldn't, she couldn't, she had to unsubscribe from Al Gore because it was like every day was just uh, uh, apocalyptic images of, of what global warming could do. It didn't help. It, it's like, it doesn't necessarily help to tell everybody, if you don't do anything by this date, the world's going to end. And what this guy was saying was like, by panicking about it, when the, it doesn't even help that people aren't doing anything by us panicking about it. His whole point was like, when, when uh, solar cells come down in price, when, when, these th uh, when, uh, you know, when these things get, the technology improves, they will get affordable and some of these things will get accelerated. Right. And he also thought that you know, some of the stuff in Gore's movie was, was like just too far to what could happen. Even though I'm not saying it couldn't conceivably happen. So I'm just saying if you depress people so much with your message, you don't have to say, oh, come over here, it's going to be fun. But you can do it differently that you're not panicking everybody. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incomplete message, right? You know, I mean, the thing that I, that, 
like my, the way that I approach activism and social change is that you have to start with things are messed up, but yeah. then you have to get to, and it can get better, and we have a plan, and here's how the plan involves you, you know, and it, right, like, right, it, you know, this is this is how things could be better because most most people know that things are messed up, and it's not hard to get them upset about it. It's what's hard is to get them to have any sense of hope that like if I anything that I could do to could help. And, yeah, but, yeah, and that that did exist during the '60s. Right. Well, because but the thing is, a part of that was because you had people. I mean, I was very much into Alan Watts. You had people who were telling you about some of the Eastern philosophies, which were that if you get too much into expect, like, you know, the Buddhist thing of uh, being not attaching yourself mm -hmm. to any specific outcome is a very, very important thing because it doesn't mean that you don't get involved, but it means that you are not the thing that you're doing. Right. And I do believe that, that I do believe that there's truth to that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's a talk that I have, uh, with, with, uh, with new activists, which is, I call it the, the struggle is long comrade talk. Yes, um, you know it's like there's a point you got to pace yourself, and it's you know it's is there are these ups and downs and setbacks and defeats and reversals, and you lose more than you win until you win. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and uh, and people, people, you know, it's so easy to get your hopes up and then get your hopes dashed by Obama, and like get this big sense of. Of you know, or get your hopes up by the '60s and get your hopes dashed by Reagan, and you're like, well, there was no point in any of it. It was a failure, uh, and I just feel like that's learning the wrong lessons from the experience. Well, exactly, and, and not only that, but the point of it is, is that, you know, if you say Obama is just like, I'm not saying you're saying this, but Obama is just like Bush. That's what Nader was saying. I mean, I think Ralph Nader is as much responsible for a lot of the terrible things that has happened in this country as anybody else. Because if you just say, disengage from the system completely, I'm not saying you can't say that, that you're right. But but for people who voted for Nader, I wouldn't but vote for Nader. if you do say that, you're like Hitler. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I am. But I also am saying, I wouldn't vote for Ralph Nader head to head against almost anybody who was a member of the Democratic Party. I think the guy said, I don't like, he's, you have to be a politician to be a politician. That's, you're, you're electing someone to gain consensus and to try to get people to do things. Sometimes you have to stand up for what you believe in. So that's that's my fear about cynicism, is that if you say drones, Obama drones, or, or, or like Cornell West calling Obama a war criminal, I, I have no stomach for that. I, I just, that enrages me. And also I think, I'm also not saying that rage shouldn't be part of, rage and being angry and being upset about the way the world is, It has that has to be part of it. You can't live in a uh, uh, the secret uh, right. thing. <laughs> Right? Unending positivity. That's that's all we need is more positivity. Right. But being but com I'll give you a perfect example. I feel like comedy or in my family, my whole family's very funny. And I think I think it, it, it's a very spirit whether my family wants to see it or not or well, everyone has their own individual things, but there's a spiritual side to the idea of laughing at something means that you are in a way not taking it as seriously in that moment. It's the only react it's the only reaction in that moment sometimes is to laugh at it because then you're taking the, the effect of it out. As, as Sherman Alexie said, there's something inherently funny about genocide. <laughs> <laughs> Who said this? Sherman Alexie, the Who Native American author. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that him putting down that idea? 
No, that's him explaining why Jews and Native Americans and black people tend to be funny. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that's a, a very pro idea. Um, so uh, so the, the persona of Andy Kindler that we know today, did this exist when Andy Kindler drove across the country to be a singer-songwriter? Well... I have a hard time imagining this temperament at age 25. No, because I think... I, I really believe very much in the Dylan song where he says, uh, I was so much older than... I'm younger than that now. I believe that I was much more radicalized. It was simpler to me. It was simpler because the Vietnam War was so wrong. So I was raised... In, and so I had a very much right-wrong feeling about everything. And I saw everything through this... Through this uh, uh, Vietnam era, which is why I think in a lot of ways the Watergate thing was the worst thing because I think people felt like, okay, we rooted out Nixon. Now we've solved all of the evil in the world, you know? And so, yeah, I think I was a lot less uh, nuanced as a person, you know? I'm Mr. Nuance. They call me Mr. Nuance. Uh, That's what people call me all the time. Dr. Nuance? No, they say, you know, NATO, Andy Kidler's Mr. Nuance. (laughs) Yeah, don't try and be what I am. What was Andy Kindler like at the beginning of stand-up? Well, I like that you could, that you like, I like that you're referring to me in the third person because I like that to happen more than I refer to myself in the third person. Yeah. Uh, I was when I first started stand-up, it was almost I was almost naive in a way because there was no, I didn't watch a lot of stand-up and I was right in the middle of the comedy boom, so I was very naive when I first started. I kind of felt like, oh, the crowd must know what's good. And, you know, I, but I never was a, I never had the ability to be a full, or the desire to be a full-on hack, you know? So I never, even when I would do stuff that was crowd-pleasy, I never felt good about it, you know? Right. So I was just lucky in the sense that as you, I did it more and I developed my own, like, okay, this is my point of view, which you kind of have before you do comedy. If you're funny, you already have a point of view, but it's how you then translate that. Um, it, that all that other stuff, and then a lot of the stuff like where I talk about other comics, or I talk about the, the business and stuff, that just happened from me going through those experiences and realizing that my family is like that and Jews are like that. We're very, very judgmental, <laughs> and there can be humor in that, and there's also trouble in that too. Right. <laughs> like my wife will point out that there is a self that I can get into self sabotage, which I am totally willing to admit. And I also think I, when I look back at a lot of things where I got very angry in life about stuff, it was because of the pressure, you know? You were talking about sort of being there for the beginning of alternative comedy? Yeah. What was that like? Well, that was extremely exciting because, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's been alternative movements in, uh, and, you know, Lenny Bruce and those guys were alternative in a way, obviously. Right. Anytime there's new things that are happening and Letterman in that, that whole time period. It was very exciting because, well, there was this one club called Uncabaret, uh, which was uh, Beth Lapidus started this club at Luna Park in L.A. That still exists, right? It still does exist, not in that same venue. Yeah. And it was extremely exciting because you had all these people, like if you had seen Kathy Griffin, like a lot of people who may not say they're not Kathy Griffin fans because they don't necessarily like the D-list stuff, but if you had seen her in these small clubs when the alternative movement was cooking... It was unbelievable, and same same with like Janine. I mean, Janine Garofalo was back then. David Cross was doing amazing uh, stand up back then. So uh, there were all these great great people who were gravity who couldn't get work in regular mainstream comedy clubs anymore because they had become real kind of 
too many clubs, too homogenized, very hacky clubs. Right. And, uh, you know, like, I like juggling, but I don't But necessarily... I like magic, but I don't necessarily like that magic is then used to create a mainstream comedy act. You right. know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so it was really, it was really, really exciting. And, and people like Bob Odenkirk did stand up then. They were amazing. Yeah, I, so I, I saw him when he was at Second City. I was... I went with my parents to, to that my parents took me to Second City, and I saw the, it was a show. It was him and Chris Farley and Tim Meadows. Yeah, uh, it was probably '91. Wow. And uh, the thing that's so interesting to me about the beginning of alternative comedy, like a lot of the people who came out of that scene, are so significant in the comedy world now, but that that is happening, like in the ashes of the end of the comedy boom. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like the com there's the comedy boom happening, and then there's this sort of narrative that on the one hand, like say between you know 91 and 95 it's at, the comedy boom is ending and at the same time out of the ashes of that is beginning this you know this next wave of major innovation and cre creative ferment yes and the thing that's great about that is that's created what's going on today which i think in many ways is very exciting there's so many i think there's a lot of great comics now and it's so far because i used to joke in the 90s that the last place someone would think to find something funny would be in a comedy club it'd be like finding a funny book in the humor section of a bookstore. You know, it's like, for a long time, I, people I know who like comedy, they never would have gone into a comedy club. Right. And I think it's taken so many years to prepare this image of comedy as this cheesy uh, nachos. Uh, it's like the, uh, the classic to me is in Zany's in Chicago, in the kitchen, there's a bubbling cauldron of, of but it's not, it's, you know, it's cheese that doesn't ever congeal. And oh, to me, yeah. that's an image of stand-up comedy in the 80s. It's, it's like a I, hacky, uh, cheesy, well, lowest common denominator. We're still fighting that in the sense of like, I mean, how many people do, do I know who think that they like comedy and will like watch The Daily Show or whatever and laugh at it, but would never go out to see live comedy because they're worried about the comic saying something, you know, yes. homophobic right. or mean from the stage or picking on people, uh, you, know, you know, in a way that's really offensive. Um, so, I mean, I, I, feel, and, I, I feel like we haven't totally... And also, it's a very, very tough thing to do because, you know, like I got in, uh, not trouble, but, you know, I spoke out and said this guy, Anthony Kumia of Open Anthony, was, was that his, you know, whether he should have kept his job or not, his tweets were, ra he was, he's a racist. And in fact, I don't just think that he was saying racist things. I think it's clear now he's a racist and the people who follow him, they're just, they're just racists who have organized under the concept of comedian. But right. the problem is that when you go down too far in that road and you're worried so much, then you can't appreciate someone like David Tell, who I don't think is anybody funnier on the planet than him, and within two minutes will say things that if you looked at him on paper... You know, he's mocking, he, he's mocking midgets. You know, he's using right. the word. But to me, even if he's not aware, to me, it's like social. The fact that he goes on for 10 minutes about midgets, to me, is actually social commentary of, like, how ridiculous would it be to be against any particular group? And how, when you, when you, like, he says, like, uh, and I never, again, I never use these words, but he usually goes, uh, you know, for midgets, a, a postage stamp is a painting. You know, so it's like he's, now, does Dave Attell think he's doing social commentary? I don't know. I don't think he does. Maybe he really doesn't like little people. I, but I don't care because he's hilarious. And that's where I've always drawn the line in this debate is, you know, when they went after Colbert and they said cancel Colbert. That is so ridiculous because he obviously was someone that we know has a track record of, of being on the 
right side of issues for the right reasons and using humor to point out the, the ludicrous nature of it. So that's where I worry. I do worry about political correctness, but I also think political correctness can't be used to say you can't put down someone who's racist like the Anthony guy. You can't say he's racist because then that's somehow going to threaten free speech. Right. I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with you like the, that, the, that no subject is off limits. It's in how it's done, right. whether it's funny and whether it's a you know, intelligent, thoughtful joke. And there are certainly people, and it's their right to say, you know, I just don't believe you should ever joke about the Holocaust or slavery or rape or whatever. And right. That's, and then that's that's fine, but that's like, well, that's a good thing to know about yourself because then maybe comedy's not for you. Yes. You know? Right. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, this is like your friend Bill Maher, that, that <laughs> tweet that he got in trouble for about Hamas being like a woman that you had to slap or something. Oh, I don't even remember that. <laughs> and, and it was like, well, you know, it was both offensive and a lazy joke. Yeah. Like, so... He's the worst tweeter in the. He's the worst tweeter, and that's why you know he's a terrible tweeter because he's always saying T Twitter doesn't mean anything. No, Twitter doesn't mean anything when you are incapable of being funny on Twitter, or in in life, <laughs> which is true about him. Burn. He's not funny. He hasn't been funny maybe ever. Let's let's face it and move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is not true. I used to actually like that show in the early 2000s, and is, I don't think he's without talent because he's made me laugh at times, but man, has he turned into a horse's ass. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much, Andy thank Kindler. Thank you, Nato. I'm sorry that this did not uh, come out as a, uh, a, a history of the Haight-Ashbury region uh, and that it, it, it somehow went into different directions. I apologize for that in general. I accept, I'm joking. I accept your apology. And I'm still angry at you about... Uh, Yes, yes, I am. Thank, hi, I am on Bob. Yes, I am on Bob's Burgers. You know, this is Andy Kindler from television. Yeah, I'm from television. As Andy Kindler. Uh, from nice television. to meet you. I'm from Bob's Burgers. Uh, thank you, thank so, you. So there were some people. I don't. I didn't see people who recognized you as Andy Kindler from who, from being famous, but there were people who saw that there were two guys standing on the street holding microphones and were like, "This must be something important." So did you hear someone yell, In "Interview me! I'm interesting." Uh, no, I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Hey Ashbury. Good night. That was the NATO Sessions with Andy Kindler. Uh, the NATO Sessions is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. It's produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Reel. Uh, please like us, subscribe, share, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.